Good morning. Is it working? All right. We're having a little trouble at the beginning. If I suddenly pause, it's because people are waving at me back there and I have to figure out something to do. Um, as was said earlier today, we don't have our worship guide. So if you're new today, um, I am not one of the pastors. Uh, most of you all know that. Um, I'm an elder. And so uh, occasionally I get to preach uh, to give Todd and, and Daniel and others a break. Um, this seems to be one of my traditional Sundays. Um, I often get this Sunday where we're kind of between things. Uh, we're between the Advent series and the next series hasn't started up. So I kind of get a freebie, uh, which, as you have heard me say before, usually terrifies me because I have no idea about what to speak. Um, but this year, as Brent reminded me and uh, remembered from my last sermon, uh, I already knew uh, six or eight weeks ago what I was going to preach on, and we're going to hear about adoption today. And we're doing that because uh, my, the last sermon series that I was a part of back in September and October, we talked about our worship service. And over the course of several weeks, we looked at every part of the service, and I had the last one on the benediction. And even last week, Todd was nice enough to mention that sermon um, on the benediction. Uh, the passage for that service was from number six, and it ended with a call for God to set his name on us. And I observed that that was nothing less than adoption. And I also observed that I'd never heard a sermon on adoption. Um, uh, so I told you that during my freebie week, and we're here, we made it through Christmas, etc., that I was going to talk on adoption. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And you know, it's interesting, as I've read several commentaries, many of them observe that we almost never talk about the idea of adoption. So apparently I was not alone in that observation. And the, the thing that's interesting is I've studied adoption over these last weeks is it, it really underlies everything we do. I mean, it's like the water we're swimming in if we're fish. I mean, I think the reason we don't recognize it is it's just so much of how we worship and live. And I hope that as I go through this today, you're going to see how that's true. Um, but the problem with that, if we do that, is we're apt to miss the wonder of adoption. We're apt to just think that's the way it is. And I'll comment a little bit on that as I go as well. So adoption, simply put, is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. And we're going to see that adoption brings four things, or three things, and then we're going to make a final observation about it. It brings a new relationship with God. It brings new relationships with some human beings. It brings us new privileges, and it is now and not yet. So our passage from Romans today is one of five in which the word adoption actually appears. But this idea of adoption runs all through the New Testament. And so as I go, I'm going to pick up a lot of passages. You'll see some of them pop up on the screen. Some of them you won't. hope you don't get too confused about that. Um, but, but this issue of, of adoption, of being some special way a child of God, is actually found throughout the New Testament. And we'll look at those as we go. Let's pray. Lord... We thank you that we're adopted, that you have brought us into your family. And so this morning, as we reflect on that, help us to um, recognize the wonder of it and uh, just how much you bless us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to start with our uh, passages today, looking actually in the book of John. In the first chapter of John, he says, first, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John is telling us that every person who receives Jesus, every person who believes in his name is now a child of God. Now that does kind of beg a question, doesn't it? Isn't every human being a child of God? Isn't that what people say? Well, actually, the scriptures never tell us that every human being is a child of God. It never says that. Now, some may say, but God created us all. So in that sense, he's our father, and that's true. I'll grant you that. But in the way this is talking, in this context and meaning here, not every human being is a child of God. The context here is Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world, and not all of his own, that is, the Jews have received him. That's the context. And so the meaning then is that those who receive him, who believe in him, then are the ones who have this special relationship as a child of God. Now later, Jesus minces no words when it comes to those who have not received him. In chapter 8, some of the Jews claim that God is indeed their father. But Jesus answers them. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus makes it pretty plain. And these are very strong and some would say offensive words. Jesus tells us that those who do not believe in him have the devil as their father. Those who believe in Jesus have God as their father. So if a believer is moving from having the devil as his father to having God as his father, to have your father changed is to be adopted. The believer is adopted by God. And this happens by the power of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Children of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Paul similarly in Ephesians tells the Ephesian believers that before they came to faith in Jesus, they were by nature children of wrath <clears throat> and sons of disobedience. And he reminds the Galatian believers that they are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So it's adoption by God through faith in Jesus that moves a person from being a child of wrath and a son of disobedience to being a child of God, to being adopted. Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Now, <clears throat> you might be saying, of course we're adopted. Of course we're children of God. You might be thinking that, that of course that's true. Of course, we have a new relationship with God when we become followers of Jesus. But you know what? Let's stop and think about that for a minute. Let's stop and think about it for a minute because the adoptive relationship that God provides us is not a necessary concomitant of belief. It is not something that necessarily by the nature of believing follows that we would become children of God. As we come to faith in Jesus, we know that we are justified, that our sins are forgiven. And those sins mean past sins, present sins, future sins. Our guilt is removed. But though our guilt is removed, there are effects of sin that are not removed. 
These effects include corruption and alienation. We are corrupt. That is to say, we still sin. Yes, we are forgiven, but we still sin. And we are alienated. Yes, we are connected to God more by belief, but we are still alienated. We are still separated from God, from one another, and from ourselves. And God could have simply left us there. Completely forgiven. Completely justified. We would have had to have been completely thankful. And we could have just been left there. But he doesn't. He works in us in a process that we call sanctification, which is to become more like Jesus. And while we're never going to become sinless, we do, as we become sanctified, sin less. And he works in us through adoption so that we belong to his family. So that we can be integrated into relationship with him, with one another, and within ourselves. Adoption, then, is a work of God which, by which he brings us into a new relationship with himself. And he did not have to do that while we lived on earth. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that just kind of go, wow. And I just took it for granted. I just thought it was normal. We are now the adopted children of God. And that new relationship with God brings us new relationships with other people, and it brings us new privileges now and in the future. So we have new relationships with one another, with other believers. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. All believers are now part of God's household. We are now brothers and sisters to each other. And we should love one another and work with one another as befits brothers and sisters in a family. Now, you might look to your left and right and think, I didn't choose them, all right, to be my brothers and sisters. And you would be right. But then again, you didn't pick your human brothers and sisters, did you? And just as in the healthiest human families, family members work at their relationships to make it better, so it should be in our spiritual families. We should be working to make our church family relationships better as well. Now, that means that we need to take the time to get to know each other. It means we need to recognize that we have differences. We don't all think the same. We don't all look the same. We don't have all the same attitudes. But you know what? It's the same Holy Spirit working in us all. It means that we work together to further the kingdom in our midst and in the world around us. John White states it this way. You were cleansed by the same blood regenerated by the same spirit you are a citizen of the same city a slave of the same master a reader of the same scriptures a worshiper of the same god the same presence dwells silently in you as in them therefore you are committed to them and they to you they are your brothers sisters your fathers mothers and children in god whether you like or dislike them you belong to them you have responsibilities toward them that must be discharged in love As long as you live on this earth, you are in their debt. Whether they have done much or little for you, Christ has done all. And he demands that your indebtedness to him be transferred to your new family. That's what we're called to do together. This working on living together as adoptive brothers and sisters is really not optional. It's not something where I'll "Eh, take it, man, I'm not going to do it now. It's not optional. It's not something that you can decide, uh, I think I'll work on it next year, but not this year, or something like that. And there are profound implications of this that, 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 that Scripture tells us are, are huge in the world around us. 
The first has to do with how non-believers know that you're a believer in the first place. Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Notice he doesn't say, They will know you are my disciples by how well you follow the rules. As important as that might be. He doesn't say they will know that you are my disciples by how much you suffer on my behalf. And as important as that is. He says that the world is going to know that there is something different about you and me by how well we love and serve one another. You hear the echoes of 1 Corinthians 13 in that, don't you? It's not knowledge or faith or giving to the poor or suffering that is anything compared to love. And even more profoundly, and if that wasn't profound enough, non-believers will learn something critical about Jesus by how well we love and serve one another in unity. John 17, 21, Jesus is praying that they may all be one, that's all of us, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. To the degree that you and I dwell in love and unity with one another as fellow adoptive children of God is the degree to which the watching world will believe that Jesus was sent by God. That sounds pretty scary to me too. To state the converse, when we lack love and unity, then the world will assume that we're just kidding ourselves about this Jesus thing, that it's really not real. If we try to fake it, they're going to see right through it. They will assume that we're no different than they are, and they're going to have great trouble coming to Jesus in faith if we lack unity and love. So being adopted by God leads to a new relationship with God and with our brothers and sisters, and it's those relationships with our brothers and sisters which help non-believers understand that our faith is real and that Jesus was sent by God. And then there are great privileges that are ours because of adoption. And of course, the greatest privilege we have in our adoption is the ability to pray and speak to God and relate to him as a good and loving father. From our passage today in verses 14 and 15, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. I've noted this before, as I've had opportunity to preach, that we are so used to using the word Father in our prayers that we do not recognize the sheer grace that's behind that. Very much like we don't recognize adoption as as the wonder that it is. But if you look at the sweep of the Old Testament revelation of God, you will see only hints of God as Father. And then only in relationship to the nation of Israel, not to individual Hebrews. And nowhere, nowhere do we see the idea of a Hebrew addressing God as father. Just to look at a few in Exodus 4.22, Israel is the firstborn son of God. In Psalm uh, 103, David writes, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. In Isaiah 64, Isaiah says something that sounds close to a personal statement. It's getting close. But now, O Lord, you are our father. But then it's followed by, we are the clay and you are the potter. (laughs) That's hardly the kind of father-son relationship you're really thinking about there. Radically then, at a time in Jewish history, 
in which the name of God was hardly ever publicly uttered, Jesus comes on the scene and always calls God Father. With one exception, in every prayer in the Gospels, Jesus calls God Father. What is that exception? What's the one time that Jesus does not call God Father when he prays to him, cries out to him? It's on the cross. It's when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The exception proves the point. God, the the radicalness of Jesus calling God Father. Not only that, but Jesus from early in his ministry authorized his followers to call God Father as well. In Matthew 6 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. This was radical, heretical, blasphemous to the Jewish leaders. And it's one of the reasons that Jesus, uh, why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. So one might ask, why is it so wonderful that we're able to call God our Father? Why is that better than calling God God? Well, I can think of three words that summarize why it is so wonderful to call God our Father. Those three words are provision, restoration, and assurance. In Matthew 7, soon after Jesus has told his followers to pray to God as Father, he states, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, we're just past Christmas, or or still in it. I'm not sure what from the previous conversation. But, But I'm presuming that most of you fathers actually did not give your children stones or snakes. I'm, I'm just thinking. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Some of you might like snakes. That, you know, there are a few people out there like that. But, but m- no, what, what you gave them is some of what they wanted and some of what they needed. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. He provides for us. He gives us what we want sometimes. And He always provides what we need. That's the provision that He has. But, you know, there's this little thing sometimes in that too. Um, Because one of the things that we need sometimes, both as little children of human fathers and adult children of our Heavenly Father, is discipline. Don't like to talk about that one very much, but we should really see this as one of the provisions of God in our adoption. The author of Hebrews notes in Hebrews 12, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. That doesn't sound good, all right? Um, scourging, I I looked that up, it's really just punishing, it's not, you know, whipping. Um, But anyway, he goes on to say, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which, sorry, but if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So we need to move through our lives on earth as we live them out in faith that we understand that we will sometimes come to times of God's discipline. And you should not look at that as a time of discouragement. You should actually look at that as a time of encouragement because it's a sign 
that the good father who knows what's best is working in you and is providing for you. The result in Hebrews 12, 11 is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God in our adoption provides for us, provides what we want, provides what we need, sometimes some things that we wish we didn't need. Now, have you ever wondered why, if it's true that we're justified, that we're completely forgiven our sins, that Jesus also taught us to pray daily, Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Moreover, soon after that, he says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And in another setting, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. (coughs) Excuse me. So what is this all about? Do I have to ask for forgiveness for every sin? And if I fail to do so, am I not forgiven? Because I'm not going to remember all those sins. Let's, let's face it, right? Is it the case that if we don't ask for forgiveness of sins that we're no longer justified? That is not at all what this means. This has to do with restoration of relationship. Jesus recognizes that we will continue to sin in this life even though we were forgiven. Remember, we still have corruption. And this sin, though it does not ultimately condemn us, disrupts our relationship with our Heavenly Father, especially sin from which we do not repent. Wayne Grudem says, The prayer for forgiveness of sins each day is a prayer that God's fatherly relationship with us, which has been disrupted by sin that displeased Him, be restored. And they relate to us once again as a father who delights in his children whom he loves. The prayer, forgive us our sins, therefore, is one in which we are relating not to God as eternal judge of the universe, but to God as a father. It is a prayer in which we wish to restore the open fellowship with our father, which has been broken because of sin. And this is why every week in our service we have confession. We remind ourselves that our sin has impaired our relationship with our Father, and so we take some time to own it and to confess it. And then we hear words of forgiveness and restoration of relationship with God, and then we do something that naturally flows from that. We speak words of restoration, peace, and comfort to one another. You may not use those words, but I will tell you that in your speaking to one another and the passing of the peace, you are, in fact, creating restoration, peace, and comfort with your adoptive family. So you see, God, our Father, in our adoption, provides for us, and He restores our relationships with Him. And He also assures us. Returning to our passage for today, verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Probably the most wonderful thing that God our fathers does for us as we become believers is to send the Holy Spirit into our lives. (coughs) Jesus told us that was the main reason that he had to ascend to heaven, to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, into the lives of those who were and are following him. It is the Spirit of God in our hearts that gives us the boldness to call God Father, Daddy. 
And it's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts with our spirits to testify and confirm that we are indeed adopted children of God. And this work is what we call assurance. Now, we don't have time to talk about assurance completely, but, but let me just reflect on three quick things that I think the Holy Spirit does for us in assurance. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we, are, that we have to presently trust in Christ for salvation. You know, for all of us who have been believers for many decades, it's good to be able to look back and identify the details of when it was that we became believers. It's really kind of fun to talk about those things. But you know what really matters is today. Are you still trusting in God for today? For, are you trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Were you to stand before God later today? Would it be on the merits of Jesus that you would stand? Or all the good things you did since you became a believer? It needs to be the former, doesn't it? The Spirit, as we've seen this morning, reminds us of our continuing sin and corruption and reminds us that we have to trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit also works to change our hearts, and, and we should see evidence of that. And these changes we summarize in the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that we find described in Galatians 5. Now, we're not going to manifest those things perfectly, but we should see evidence of those things in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in us over the long haul as we continue to persevere and continue to trust. So the Holy Spirit increasingly assures us, the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. So you see, provision, restoration, and assurance are ours because we're the adopted children of God and because God is our Heavenly Father. There's one other thing that is ours because we're adopted children, and it's kind of like discipline. We don't want to talk about it very much, and it's suffering. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may all be glorified with him. It's the clear teaching of Scripture that followers of Jesus may and likely will suffer because they are followers of Jesus. And it is clear from our experience that followers of Jesus at different times in history and in different places on earth have suffered to varying degrees. You need only read the news this past week to understand that. I do not completely understand why God allows his children to suffer and why some suffer so much more horrendously than others. I think it has something to do with God glorifying himself. Odd as that sounds. At least that was true with the man born blind in John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. At least in this case, the suffering of this person was not anyone's fault. It was so God would be glorified. And so it seems to me with the suffering of his adoptive children. When we hear of the suffering of followers of Jesus in our midst, doesn't it often lead to the stories of God's provision and of the believer's perseverance? And doesn't that bring glory to God? And when we hear of even more horrendous suffering of followers of Jesus in the world, isn't it usually accompanied by stories of God's provision, even if it's God's provision of welcoming arms into heaven? And doesn't that bring glory to God? I think most of us living in this place 
in this time in history would have to conclude that we've suffered relatively little for Jesus, at least compared to others at other times and in other places. And we should be truly thankful for that. But we should not be surprised if suffering comes our way as individual believers or as a whole body of believers. And if and when we come, sorry, and if and when it comes, we should not conclude that God has disowned us or somehow dissolved the adoption we have as his children. So you see, adoption is this great act that God has performed to create a special relationship with us as his adoptive children. And I hope that as we've looked at this broad sweep of the New Testament teaching on adoption, that you'll see that it does, in fact, literally underlie everything we do as believers. It is the major work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It is the basis of our relationship with one another. It is the reason that we come before God with confidence in prayer and call him Daddy, Father. It is the reason that we can trust him to provide for our needs. It is the reason that we can trust that his discipline of us is for our good. It is the reason that we confess every day and in our worship service so that we can restore that relationship. It is the reason we have assurance. And it is the reason that we suffer for God's glory. But remarkably, as great and wonderful as the work of adoption is in our lives today, perhaps the greatest thing is that we are only barely tasting the final adoption that we will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul continues in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Adoption, as is true of many things in our lives as believers, is both now and not yet. And as you experience the truth of adoption in your life and in the lives of those around you, don't forget that you are not seeing the whole thing. There is much, much more to come when our corruption is all finally removed and when our alienation is all finally healed. May that time come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.